So the year is 4,018. And you live in the southern part of France. And you are a sophomore in college, assuming they still have it. And someone in your class hands you a history book, assuming they still have those. And in that book, you begin to look at a picture. And the first picture is a picture of an elephant and a donkey. And there are these captions. The elephant and the donkey are talking back and forth to one another. And you turn the page over, and there's another picture of another elephant and another donkey. And you, sitting in this class, doing your research in the year 4018, are trying to make sense of this absolutely ridiculous picture. Absolutely ridiculous because you are separated from the context that this was created within by almost 2,000 years, an ocean, and probably a language barrier. And you're looking at this cartoon trying to figure out what is happening. And part of the problem when we come to the book of Revelation is you could think of it much in this way. It is a very elaborate political cartoon. And last week we talked about what the book of Revelation actually is doing. And there were four things. And if I could get my displays switched, that would be awesome. Thank you. There, there were four um, things we talked about. First of all, it's Jewish apocalyptic literature. And what we said, apocalyptic simply means unveiling. It's not really referring to the end of times, but it's this idea of the curtains being drawn back and you given a glimpse to this new world that lies on the other side of the curtains that before you were not able to see. Secondly, it was this prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. And it, it, I think one of the things that we can all agree on is maybe one of the most beautiful um, things with satire is satire has the ability to cut to the heart. Like there's this side of satire that's funny, but there's also this side that kind of hurts. It's like, oh man, that, yeah, it's pretty funny, but that's true. There, there's truth there. And so this prophetic critique of specifically the Roman Empire, because this is the context it's written within, but more importantly, it's a prophetic critique of all empires. Third, it, everything written in it is symbolic. Everything from the dragon to the beast to the lamb to the lake of fire to the bejeweled city is symbolic. And it's coded. Because remember, John is writing this in Rome. In the Roman Empire. Not in Rome, the city itself, but in the empire. And so you can't just come out and say this is about Rome. And so he disguises it almost as this political cartoon. With these symbols. 
that if you're living in this empire, you begin to pick up on because you're in the context of it. And then fourth is we spent a lot of time last week on this idea that it's written in the style of Greco-Roman theater. It is a drama. John says it's meant to be read aloud. It's something that's to be acted out. And so you get this beautiful sense as you start to read um, different parts of it, this drama that's unfolding beneath the surface. And so this morning, I want to kind of work through the second two of those, a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire and everything within it is symbolic, and talk about why that's so important. So kind of here's where we're going to go. We're going to talk for a few minutes about Caesar's world, then we're going to talk about the seven churches, then we're going to move on to the art of seduction, and then talk about the invitation of the Lamb. But first, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was ruled by a series of Caesar, beginning with a guy named Julius Caesar, who never actually became emperor, but gave the empire over after a, a fierce battle to his son Octavian, who was named um, Augustus Caesar. And in 14 BC, Augustus Caesar saw a shooting star in the skies, and he announced to the world that his cosmic hour had come. And that was, in fact, that star that was shooting through the night sky was his father Julius ascending to the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. And so when you claim that your father is God, that would make you the son of God. And so then this succession of Caesars begins to rule the world. And I want to just give you a little bit of a taste of what the world was right like at this time. The prophet or the poet Virgil says, he will annihilate the evil of the past and free the people from unceasing fear. He will establish a universal empire of peace and will lead in the golden age for a blessing of a new, a renewed humanity. The savior of peace who has brought a golden age to the world. May it last with increasing splendor from age to age, now and forever. The Roman general Germanicus, it was written about him, he slaughtered the population across the Rhine. For 50 miles around, he wasted the countryside with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Only the destruction of the race will end this war. Pompey boasted of taking over 12 million prisoners from 1,500 towns. Diodorus said, they made the boundaries of the empire equal to the boundaries of the earth. The Roman general Titus, he conquered all of Judea, crucifying approximately 500 people per day. Polybus said, it seems that they do this for the sake of terror. Varus, the Roman general, bragged he once crucified 2,000 people at once. And Josephus says, the soldiers, out of rage and hatred, bore the prisoners, nailed those they caught in different postures to the crosses for the sport of it. And there was a number so great that there was not enough room for the crosses and not enough crosses for the, bo- for the bodies. So this was the world of the Roman Empire, stretching for over three or 400 years these different rulers, these different generals, these different Caesars, the world that they created. 
And Revelation is written about a specific time period when a man named Nero Caesar was on the throne in Rome. This is Nero's golden house. It's his palace that he built. And Nero, it said, hated Christians, despised them, killed them. Um, Many think he was crazy. He started a fire. Most historians believe he started a fire in Rome and then blamed it on the Christians so that they would be persecuted throughout Rome and throughout the empire. In this golden house, you'll see over to this side, to the right, back behind, there is a large, large garden. And historians say that Nero hosted parties in his garden. It was over three acres large, and he liked to have these parties at nighttime. And because there was no electricity, he would stake people to posts about 20 feet up in the air and light them on fire to give light to his parties, mainly Christians. This was life in Rome. And life in Rome for the Caesars was about furthering the Pax Romana. Pax Romana simply means the peace of Rome. You can see how peaceful Rome must have been. And it was. It was peaceful. As long as you fell in line with the empire. As long as you became like everyone else. This is the world of Caesar. And so, this letter of Revelation is a prophetic critique. We said it's apocalypse, but it's also a prophetic letter lit, written literally to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And it's calling them to be faithful witnesses to the Lamb who was slain in the midst of this massive global empire. Now, you have all read the first part of Revelation, where it talks about these churches, and it critiques them, and it talks about them. And if you're like me, we usually read through it, and it's just a list of these did well, and these didn't do so well, and these were kind of right here in the middle. And we know what Laodicea was like, and we know what Pergamum was like. We know what Ephesus was like. And it's pretty easy from a distance to be harsh on them. But I want you to think about the context of the world that they lived in. This world of Rome, this world where Caesar rules the day, where Caesar has absolute power. And then there are these churches that are struggling to be faithful witnesses to Jesus King Jesus, in the midst of this empire, can you see why it might have been rather difficult? In this massive empire, you have these seven churches. In some of the cities like Ephesus, these major urban centers of 250,000 people in that day, 
And inside of this urban city, you have these small little minority house churches of 50, 60, 100, 200 people. And they're trying to go against the grain of the empire. They're they're trying to not be like everyone else. And so John writes this prophetic letter calling them to be faithful witnesses to Jesus. And these slogans began to spread throughout the empire. This imperial propaganda that Caesar is Lord. That Caesar is the Son of God. That Caesar rules the day. And then you have these small little churches starting to pop up with this message in the midst of the empire. No, no, no. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. Can you see how difficult their world was? And how difficult it would have been to be faithful witnesses to the slain lamb, Jesus. So, as we said last week, this divine drama, with drama, tragedy, comedy, and chorus, is written and it's meant to be read out loud. And I know for a lot of you, you struggle when we read really, really lengthy passages, but to give you a real sense of what's happening, I need you to to hang in there for a minute and listen to the story as it's unfolding. And I've just kind of picked some parts of it that we can go back and we can piece together. So I'm going to begin where we started last week in Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment she was born. Remember, this is not representative Mary, mother of Jesus. It's mother of humanity. It's birthed lots and lots and lots of children that the devil has been devouring. But here is this new child that she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to the place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And then a war broke out in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient servant called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. And then turning over to Revelation chapter 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, and with ten crowns on its horns, on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, 
but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. And the people worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? And then skipping down to chapter 13, verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had ten horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. And it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven on the earth in full view of the people. Because of its, the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth and, order, and ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark of the beast which is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. Then one more, skipping to chapter 16, starting in verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Which way do we see man going in Scripture away from the presence of God? East. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world, and they gather them for the battle on the great day of the Lord Almighty, God Almighty. Look, I came like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So as this divine drama unfolds, you have what is set up as basically an unholy trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet who are going out seducing the nations to war. And so the dragon that we looked at last week is Satan. The beast, the first beast that comes out of the sea is empire. And the third beast that comes from the land is propaganda. It's the false prophet, the one who speaks and gets people to worship the first beast that came out of the sea, which is 
Rome. And so it sets up this incredible story, this picture here in Revelation. And it talks about empire. And there's a difference between empire and nations. Not every nation. God has love for the nations. But it's empire. And, and trying to d- distill, what, how do you define empire? Here's what I came up with. Empires believe it is their manifest destiny and divine right to rule the world by oppressing and marginalizing the weak and those who do not fall in line with their political, economic, religious, racial, or and or social ideology. So you have this unholy trinity. And then he goes on to set up this picture of the bride of the beast. And what we're going to get to in just a minute is everything has an alternative. The lamb has a bride. The beast has a bride. And it's this prophetess or goddess, Roma. It was the image of of Rome. And she was royal, regal, well-respected. And what Revelation does and John does here is he turns her in to a drunken prostitute. If you want to put it in our context, imagine someone writing a story and the story climax, the climactic part of the story comes to this point where the Statue of Liberty is portrayed as a drunken prostitute. If you're in this nation and someone does that, what are you starting to feel? Anger. You, you can't do that. You can't do that. And the claim is the nations have drunken the maddening wine of her adulteries. Can you see why John was exiled to an island of Patmos? Can you see why Rome wanted him out of the picture? And then these three, this unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, out of their mouth come these three frogs that start to go throughout the empire. And these three frogs are these evil spirits of accusation, empire, and propaganda. And they serve this role. They're seducing the kings. They're seducing the nations, the empires, to come to war and battle. And there's this place that they're trying to seduce them and get them to meet. And the place is Armageddon. And so, Armageddon. And if you've read any popular theology of our day, Armageddon is the last great war where Jesus is going to come back and slay two million people. But there's a little bit of a historical context to this. Armageddon is actually a place. It's a city. Today, it's called Tel Megiddo. It's in the fertile plain of the Jezreel Valley, and it's situated between the countries, the empires, the kingdoms of the south, Egypt, and the kingdoms of the north, Babylon, Assyria, 
Rome. And it was in the middle of the most prominent trade route between the two. And if you'll notice, Tel Megiddo sits up on a hill. But it didn't originate that way. It was flat in this fertile plain. But Tel Megiddo is a city that has been built, destroyed, and rebuilt 26 times. This was a battlefield. And nations fought for control over Megiddo. Because if you controlled this city, you controlled commerce and the economy and trade and power. And it says these evil spirits coming out of this unholy trinity are seducing the kings to come to war. Understand this, in the context of Revelation, Armageddon is not a war, but rather our propensity to go to war, to battle, to fight for control and for supremacy. And then, in chapter 19, starting in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a great, was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his, on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything in Revelation has an alternative. The will of God and the wrath of God. Follow the beast and you end up at Armageddon. This is the wrath of God. Follow the peaceable way of the Lamb and you arrive at New Jerusalem. And then this new Jerusalem is presented as this beautiful, bejeweled city with 12 gates that are never shut. 
And on the outside of this beautiful city is this lake of fire where the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet will find their end. And they are not, you have to go through Armageddon to get new, to new Jerusalem. It's you get to choose. Follow the lamb and you arrive at new Jerusalem. Follow the beast and you arrive at Armageddon. And the promise of Armageddon is that this will be the war that ends all wars. But if you've ever looked at a history book, you know that's probably not true. And this white horse rider who comes back in this final battle has a sword. But the sword is not in his hand. It's coming out of his mouth. And he comes back to slay his two million people. Well, I've got to tell you, it's probably more. Because I'm one of the two million that's been slain by the sword that's coming from his mouth. It is the word of God. And if you go back to the proclamation that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever and ever, what was it that was going to accomplish this? It was the word of God and the word of their testimony. It was the word of God that was going to slay people, and it was the word of their testimony, the faithful witnesses who lived in this massive empire bent on destruction and power and control to these little churches living in the midst of this empire who were saying, Jesus is king, not Caesar. Caesar doesn't get the final word. Jesus gets the final word. And I said, everything's an alternative. It presents this beast who's got a wound, and the wound's been healed. And if you remember, the lamb has this wound that's going to be healed. But you can still see the effects of the wound on the lamb. And though its throat's been slit and it's covered in blood, somehow the lamb is still alive. There's this thought. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Jesus is going to come back and just get us out of here. And then there's the other thought on the other side that will just work as hard as you can. But what happens is John paints a picture of a better world where the word of God and the testimony of these faithful witnesses create this new world together. This world where these faithful witnesses have been slain and risen to life, just like the lamb they follow. C.S. Lewis, in The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, begins the story in the journey to Narnia with the children playing in a room. 
and they find themselves in front of this wardrobe. And they all go inside. Nothing there, said Peter. And they all trooped out again. All except Lucy. She stayed behind because she thought it would be worthwhile trying the door of the wardrobe, even though she felt almost sure that it would be locked. And to her surprise, it opened quite easily, and two mothballs dropped out. Looking into the inside, she saw several coats hanging up, mostly long fur coats. There was nothing Lucy liked so much as the smell and feel of fur. And she immediately stepped into the wardrobe and got among the coats, and she rubbed her face against them, leaving the door open, of course, because she knew that it would be very foolish to shut herself into any wardrobe. And soon she went further in and found that there was a second row of coats hanging up behind the first one. It was almost, it was quite dark, and there she kept her arms stretched out in front of her so as not to bump her face into the back of the wardrobe. She took a step further in, then two or three steps, always expecting to feel the woodwork against the tips of her fingers, but she could not feel it. This must be a simply enormous wardrobe, thought Lucy. Going further still in and pushing the soft folds of the coats aside to make room for her. Then she noticed that there was something crunching under her feet. I wonder, is that more mothballs? And stooping down to fill it with her hand. Instead of filling the hard, smooth wood of the floor of the wardrobe, she felt something soft and powdery and extremely cold. This is very queer, she said. And she went on a step or two further. Next moment, she found that she was rubbing her face and her hands against what was no longer soft, but something hard and rough and even prickly. Why? It is just like the branches of trees, exclaimed Lucy. And then she saw there was a light ahead of her. Not a few inches away where the, black, or the back of the wardrobe ought to have been, but a long way off. Something cold and soft was falling on her. And a moment later, she found that she was standing in the middle of a wood at night with snow under her feet and snowflakes falling through the air. Lucy felt a little frightened, but she was very inquisitive and excited as well. And she looked back over her shoulder, and there between the dark tree trunks, she could still see the open doorway of the wardrobe, and even catch a glimpse of the empty room from which she had set out. She had, of course, left the door open, for she knew that it was a very silly thing to shut yourself into a wardrobe. It seemed to be still daylight there. I can always get back if anything goes wrong, thought Lucy. And she began to walk forward, crunch, crunch, over the snow and through the wood toward the light. In about ten minutes, she reached the light and found it was a lamp post. And as she stood looking at it, wondering why the lamp post 
in the middle of the woods and wondering what to do next, she heard the pitter-patter of feet coming toward her. And soon after that, a very strange person stepped out from among the trees into the light of the lamppost. And if you read this story, Lucy finds this fawn, Mr. Thomas, and she meets him and goes to his house, and then she comes back to her brothers and sisters, and she runs into their room and says, you've got to see this new world. It's on the other side of the wardrobe. Because Lucy had peeked through and saw a world that she had never seen before that was right there the whole time. And her brothers and sisters certain that there is no possibility there is another world beyond the doors of the wardrobe begin to laugh and think this is an impossibility. This world can't be. And they refuse to believe her. But in this moment, Lucy had gotten a glimpse of a different world. And I know you hear this story and you say, no, that's not the way the world works. It can't work that way. Armageddon's the only way. And John writes in Revelation, no, there's a better way. There's a way that doesn't lead to Armageddon. Don't follow the beast. Don't listen to the false prophet. However lamb-like it looks, its voice is still the voice of the dragon. And the beast still worships the dragon. And everyone who follows the beast worships the dragon. Don't give in. That we're being persecuted. And we can't buy and sell in the city because we don't have the mark of the beast. And life's really difficult. And John says, hang in there. Come on, follow the lamb. Because everything inside of you is going to say, follow the beast. It's the only way. And what C.S. Lewis brings out so beautifully is there's another world. It's just waiting right there. Follow the Lamb. Because the proclamation has already been read. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Messiah. And He will reign forever and ever and ever. Follow the Lamb. Are you thirsty? Come into the city because our gates are never shut. And there's a river of water that flows from the temple. And there's these trees, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Come into the city, this beautiful, bejeweled city, which, crazy enough, is 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. In John's account, which is basically the size of the Roman Empire at this time. He's saying, you got these alternatives. I know the beast looks attractive, and I know it looks like the only way, and I know they're seducing you, come to Armageddon. But then there's the way of the Lamb. 
come. That's what the Spirit and the bride say. Come. Are you thirsty? Yeah, we're in a lake of fire. Come. Come. The invitation is yours. Come. You don't have to play the game of the beast. Because this this beast is just doing the work of the dragon. And he's seducing. Come. Are you thirsty? Are you tired of a world that says there is only one way? Are you tired of a world that's all about Rome? A world that's all about Babylon? And John paints this beautiful alternative. This is the way of the Lamb. Come. Are you thirsty? Come. Are you hurting? Come. But to come, you're going to have to dip your robe in the blood of the Lamb. Because I'll tell you, in the end, the beast comes to its end. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. Come, come to the Lamb. Come into the city. Its gates are never shut. Its water is for you. Its leaves are for your healing. Come. Father, thank you. Father, let us hear the voice of the bride, of the Spirit, calling us to come into the city, calling us to stop following the beast, calling us to follow the Lamb. Father, we believe there is a better way. And just like these seven churches, Father, there are times we doubt because we don't see how it can work any other way. But Father, your way stands as an alternative. It's a choice we make. And broad is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the road that leads to you. Father, may we follow the Lamb. May we follow the Lamb. May we surrender and dip our robe in the blood. And Father, may we come to you to be cleansed, to be purified, to be made whole. May we find that there is a better world waiting right here in the midst of them if we would just have the courage to enter in. Father, we follow you. Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. We pray in your name. Amen.